0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. As usual, during the last two weeks of each summer, we have a Holiday Clips episode for you. Slightly unusually, that clip will be the second segment. It will feature Beth Turner, the co-curator, along with Austin Baer and Bailey, of Jacob Lawrence: The American Struggle. The exhibition, which debuted at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, opens at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York today, at least to members, and on August 29th to the general public. The American Struggle will be at the Met through November 1st. The Metropolitan presentation was led by Randall Griffey and Sylvia Yount. The American Struggle presents Lawrence's 1954-56 series, Struggle, from the History of the American People. The paintings offer a revisionist and pictorial history of the first five decades of the American Republic, or what Lawrence called, the struggles of a people to create a nation and their attempt to build a democracy. The exhibition marks the first time in more than 60 years that the paintings have been together. The excellent catalog was published by University of Washington Press. But first, we'll start the program with a conversation I had with critic Anzinga Simmons about Amy Sherald's new painting of Breonna Taylor as presented on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine. We taped it today, August 27th. Simmons is a Ph.D. candidate in art history and visual culture at Duke University. She was also the inaugural Tina Dunkley Curatorial Fellow in American Art, at the Clark Atlanta University Art Museum, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia, and at the Zuckerman Museum of Art at Kennesaw State University. Taylor, a 26-year-old emergency medical technician, was fatally shot by Louisville Metro Police Department officers Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankison, and Miles Cosgrove on March 13th. As of this taping, her killers have not been arrested or charged with any crime. One quick note, Simmons and I both reference a canceled Whitney Museum of American Art in New York exhibition that had been titled Collective Actions, Artist Interventions in a Time of Change. The exhibition was planned to feature work by artists who participated in various projects responding to the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, but the Whitney canceled it after many artists and others objected to the way in which they acquired the work. And Zynga Simmons and I, after the break. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton MacDonald-Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American Abstract Artists, such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ed Reinhart, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Caron, known for their participation in Abstract Expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of nonfigural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, Visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Explore art with Getty. Visit our online exhibition, Bauhaus Building the New Artist, winner of this year's Muse Award for Best Online Experience. Watch videos about art making, conservation, and art history. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. Learn to make and explore art from home. And tune into Recording Artists, winner of the 2020 Webby Award for Best Arts and Culture Podcast. Learn more at Getty.edu slash art. And we're back. And Zinga Simmons And Zinga Simmons, welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. Hello. I am uh delighted you were willing to come on at such short notice to talk with me about the uh what's really the art story of the week, which is Amy Sherald's cover for Vanity Fair magazine and understanding that we're talking about a piece what is for us at the moment anyway a piece of visual culture and that neither of us has seen the painting Um, and as best I can tell pretty much no one else has either what was your initial reaction to the Cheryl and to the cover and as you've had a couple nights to sleep on it as it changed
1: so I guess my first initial thoughts when I saw the cover and I was on Twitter and it was early in the morning and I saw it. And at first I was like, what? No way. And then I looked at it again. and I was like, wow, like what a beautiful, beautiful portrait. And I mean, if anyone is familiar with Amy Sherald's practice, it kind of swallows you whole. Like I haven't seen mm-hmm. the painting in person, but I'm sure if given the opportunity, it'll kind of have that same Amy Sherald effect that most of her paintings do for me where I see them and they're so like dizzy- dizzying and beautiful and grand that when I saw kind of Brianna Taylor in that lens, it kind of brought up a lot of questions. I guess the first question is Amy Sherald being such like a hugely popular portraitist, painter, Black woman painter, who will own this after it's no longer the cover of Vanity Fair when it's actually a painting that has to circulate somewhere and has to be on view somewhere like who's going to own that who's controlling this image who's benefiting from this image um and kind of like what was the purpose of this image um and so from there i had a lot of conversations with different friends just asking them what what are they what are their thoughts on this on the cover and like kind of what do they feel like the cover does in this particular moment and i got a lot of visibility as the answer and I sat with that for a while.
0: You mean visibility for Ms. Taylor or, or visibility for Amy Sherrill?
1: Visibility in terms of Brianna Taylor's image. And like, what is the importance of increasing the visibility of her image? And I feel like that was, whenever I would kind of like, to my friends and group text, whatever, <laughs> whenever I would question the necessity for this Vanity Fair cover, it was always like, well, this is going to bring more visibility to Brianna Taylor's image, more visibility to the issue of police brutality. And I sat with that and I started thinking, okay, number one, what is the consequence of this like heightened visibility? And then also what does it actually do? And I guess in conversations about the the visibility of her image, it brought me back to, you know, being in high school and Trayvon Martin and just kind of how I can close my eyes and I can see the smiling picture of Trayvon with the maroon Hollister t-shirt on like I saw it yesterday when I haven't seen that image in he- months or years. And so I feel like as someone who studies Black art and visual culture, um, it's interesting to see how, what is the consequence of having these images kind of etched in our psyche? um, And what kind of trauma do even like decorative images or like positive, quote unquote, positive representations when they're connected to kind of violence against Black people? What, I guess I was just kind of questioning whether visibility, increased visibility of these images, has that historically led to increased probability of justice? And in some cases, I would say yes. I feel like in the case of Emmett Teal, yes. But in the case of Trayvon Martin, I want to say no. I want to say that me having this image of his face etched into my psyche is just a, a trauma that I'm carrying with me. I don't think it necessarily gave him justice. I think that I mean, Zimmerman is still walking around today unscathed. So we're at a particular moment where we need to start critically considering how we use these images and how we proliferate these images and just like the visual landscape, you know?
0: Where does the Vanity Fair part of it come in for you? Does, does you know, so this isn't a painting or an artwork that was... First revealed in a place familiar to we art world people. This is, I mean, Vanity Fair covers are usually celebrity soaked, carefully managed by PR people, um, offerings of idealized celebrity Americana. Um, and so, how does the Vanity Fair question set for you? And does how does it matter?
1: Yeah, I guess I should have maybe prefaced that whole spiel before by saying that, like, all of this. Is me thinking about it in terms of it being this vanity fair cover, in terms of it being in terms of it being a publication that's using this image, like if we're being honest, like for profit, what does it mean to make Brianna Taylor's image a commodity? And what does it mean to make Brianna Taylor's image a commodity and then have the caption alongside it saying a beautiful life? When if we if we sort of kind of unearth that truth, yes, she did live a beautiful life, but also her life was cut short by violence and violence that we need to reckon with as Americans, um, and I don't think that I don't think that the the imagery of the cover kind of did that for me. But also, I think that in terms of Vanity Fair, I'm not sure that Vanity Fair even deeply considered Amy Sherald's work when they selected her to be the artist that you know makes this work for the cover. Because I think that particularly in this moment, we see publications, cultural institutions um, responding to this moment in a way that to me feels a little bit performative in a way that to me feels, it feels almost like a, um,
0: it's like, it's like when you go to the doctor and the doctor hits your knee with that thing. And then, you yeah, it's like this, these
1: knee jerk reactions, these knee jerk publications, these knee jerk articles, these knee jerk exhibitions that are coming out that are not really even doing kind of like the deep consideration of black art. Like I, I, I almost feel as though this moment has brought about a time where Black artists who have been making this incredible work that's speaking to the Black experience are now being almost used and their work is not even being given the, the sort of like deep criticism and deep consideration that it deserves. And again, I love Amy Sheridan. I love Amy Sherrill's practice, but I feel like there's a conversation that needs to be had about, you know, why is Brianna Taylor on the cover of Vanity Fair by a painter whose aesthetic is rendering her rejects, devoid of skin color? is that this, I feel like there was a moment that this cover could have been a moment of reckoning that is kind of lost when we have this incredibly beautiful painting that almost glosses over the reality of the violence that happened to Breonna Taylor. And so I feel like another reason that it bothered me, I guess, when I saw it is that I also, I I saw it on Twitter, first of all, and Twitter comes with, you know, all a dialogue from a bunch of different people and I feel like majority of the dialogue was like in celebration of this image
0: yeah agreed
1: and I think that also is what struck me that everyone was kind of celebrating that oh my goodness this incredible black woman painter is portraying Brianna Taylor in such a quote-unquote like positive light and um
0: on the white in the whitest magazine imaginable
1: yeah yeah and so I'm like that is a conversation that needs to be had, you know what I mean? Like another layer to that is I believe the next day they came out with their digital cover, which I felt like was a beautiful photograph of Angela Davis by the photographer Deanna Lawson. I feel like her aesthetic would have lent well to the sort of image that I wanted to see, a sort of image that would have forced America to reckon with what actually happened to Brianna Taylor. Like let's have a photographer photograph the blank incident report that the police left her home with that showed that she, you know, that showed that she, that they came into her house without cause, you know, shot her, allowed her to bleed to death for 20 minutes. You know, later, later on it was found out that the person they were even looking for was like 10 miles, was in a house that was like 10 miles away. You know, it's just, these are the facts that I want Vanity Fair to have on their cover, not a beautiful portrait of Brianna Taylor in a beautiful gown
0: yeah, you know, let me let me jump in for a quick second with to give some kind of origin points for a lot of what you just mentioned. One, this month's Vanity Fair um, is guest edited by ta Coates and features the marriage of articles with works by a number of famous black artists, including you mentioned Deanna Lawson, but also Hank Willis Thomas. Number two... About Vanity Fair's whiteness, which I guess I was the one who interrupted with that <laughs> um it was I only it, though. yeah, I mean it was only in July of this year um we're taping this on august twenty seventh um that Vanity Fair featured the work of a black photographer on its cover um mm-hmm. so so this is a space that has historically been weighted in in a certain way. And then uh, you all, you 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 raised a bit ago about the question of monetization, which I think is an important point here. I think there can be no doubt um, that the magazine is um, relying on Cheryl's celebrity uh, and what happened to Brianna Taylor, both what was done to her by the Louisville police, and then Cheryl um, making a painting of. of Ms. Taylor, to move magazine. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to this this painting. I would be, um, I don't know anything specific, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit um, if the painting were to find its way to the speed in Louisville uh, in one way or another. Um, I think that's something that bears monitoring. And then you would also raise kind of the question of the magazine's seriousness and whether it's merely embracing... A name in the news and a famous painter who uh, gave us, surely, our most memorable image of Michelle Obama. And I couldn't help but notice with a great deal of side eye that the interview <laughs> in the magazine, the interview with Amy Sherald in the magazine was conducted by Miles Pope, about whom I know nothing except for at Vanity Fair. He is the senior menswear editor. Hmm and nothing about the senior menswear editor interviewing Amy Sherald making a portrait of uh, of a murdered woman um, seems to really add up for me.
1: Yeah, I I don't understand why they they wouldn't have someone that could kind of, again, give her, give this painting the deep kind of consideration that it deserves, but I feel like this moment, we've seen a lot of that. I mean, if we we wanna talk about it, we can talk about the, the Whitney Museum's canceled exhibition, There's this kind of knee-jerk reaction to want to respond to this moment. But with that comes a sort of responsibility on the part of these cultural institutions to get it right, you know, and to actually do the work necessary to get it right. And and even if that means looping in people who have been thinking about these issues prior to COVID and prior to this quote-unquote moment that we're currently in, you know what I mean?
0: Prior, Prior to the magazine giving a damn.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, and and senior menswear editor just doesn't do that for me. I mean, you know. I know I'm saying I, it for the third time, but.
1: She's like deeply significant. So it was sad to see that we couldn't hear more about the painting. We couldn't hear more about her practice in Vanity Fair. I also think that the institutions and publications should just be very, very mindful of how they're showing their allyship because yeah. it's it's been very problematic. And I think that if they did it right, this could be really a moment of change. You know what I mean? I, I think that art has the power to kind of create this, to kind of put us in this liminal, liminal space to take us away from reality and like truly consider things and then bring us back to reality, you know, in a way that pushes us to action. And I And I wanted that from the cover.
0: Well, and historically, American art has, has done that. So let's talk about, um, God, I hate talking about paintings I haven't seen, but um, <laughs> but let's talk about at least the presentation of, of the image and what it recalls. You know, so neither of us have seen the painting. We can't, you know, we've seen it in a glossy version, which is what a magazine cover is. Uh, we have not seen it as something that absorbs and reflects light, which is a significant problem. But what about the representation of the painting, uh, you know, what does it recall for you? What do you associate it with?
1: I think immediately upon looking at it, just like the cool blue tones reminded me, and obviously because it's Amy Sherald, it reminded me of the Obama portrait, the Michelle Obama portrait. And I don't know if that was, I don't know if that was like an intentional kind of mirroring of that like soft bluish color. And even like Michelle Obama's book has that same kind of soft bluish color. So that blue with Amy with Amy Sherrill's kind of aesthetic just brought that to mind. I, I think it's interesting to kind of see the sort of to, to see the portrait as a sort of like it's Brianna Taylor, but is it? You know, I, I think the I think Amy Sheryl's practice as a whole kind of in a way, I, I mean, I don't know if she still considers it like magical realism, but I know in her early work, she was kind of describing these portraits as like a sort of magical realism where, you know, they're seeped in the real, but there also is like this element of there's like this otherworldly quality that her paintings have. And so I feel like in talking about someone. Who, whose life was cut short, and then kind of like portraying them within this like imaginary space, which again, this was obviously not like I don't I don't believe that this was like Amy Sherald's like doing. Like she's been making work that is similar to this. You know what I mean? Like this this isn't her deviating from like normal practice to create this. But I'm just saying that there is something to be said of portraying Breonna Taylor's image in a sort of imaginary. When I think that's a reality that we need to really grapple with and we don't need to mm. make it some sort of abstraction at this current moment
0: you mentioned the blue and that struck me too so so taylor is wearing a blue dress and the background of the cover slash painting is kind of a more tealish greenish blue the blue mm. you know the combination of those two colors and especially the color of brianna taylor's dress re- recalled to me tiepolo um and that blue color that is so familiar from Tiepolo's skies and because of that association i wondered if i don't know i i i guess i read the the portrait as suggesting that taylor was ascending as all of those figures in tiepolo's paintings do which you which you kind of talked about earlier about whether or not ascending is yeah
1: I, I feel like there's all these sorts of kind of like connections to the color blue like even the color blue in general kind of has this like, I don't know when I saw it, it was like this very like heavenly or like divine aura that it gave to her image, which again, I feel like situates Brianna Taylor and situates Brianna Taylor's story and her image in a sort of imaginary, which I don't think that we can afford to do that in this moment, you know? And also I think I read somewhere that her dress is aquamarine because her birthday was in March and that's her birthstone. Um,
0: And so there's a way. That is the least sounding thing I've ever heard, but
1: Yeah. her her dress is uh, that's what it said in the, in the in the the Vanity Fair interview her dress is aquamarine because you know of her birthstone but then also the idea that what struck me when i first saw the the cover was i have never seen this image of brianna taylor and i have seen probably every single image of brianna taylor you know what i mean like i've never seen her kind of posed in that way with this long stately gown on with her hair, like, like I've never seen Brianna Taylor, Um, but it looks like her immediately looking at her, you know, it's Brianna Taylor. So imagined
0: um, upon imagined.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's like this layered imagination that separates it so much from reality. I feel like it's a conversation that we should, that should be had. I think that there, I feel like for me personally, it was like, there's a need for, there was a need for this cover to sort of have just this cover to be this moment of reckoning. And I don't think that I just, I don't think that portraying her in this very idyllic imaginary, I mean, to the to, to the detail of her having her engagement ring on that she wasn't able to ever receive because her partner wasn't able to propose prior to her death, like even that small detail to me feels like it... it on the one hand, it's nice to see that Amy Sherald honored her family in that way. But on the other hand, it again separates us from the reality of what happened to her and the reality of why she is on the cover of Vanity Fair because of the violence enacted to her body and because of the violence that happens to countless Black people in this country.
0: And so... One of the things about the cover that really jumped out at me and which is, in fact, most consistent with Sherald's practice is the directness of address of the figure, um, of the figure Mm -hmm. being painted which is something that, that Cheryl and I talked about when she was on the program last year. You know, it's a directness of address that is familiar in recent American art, mostly through Kehinde Wiley, and maybe in a secondary way, mm-hmm. in a slightly different way through through Carrie James Marshall. And that directness of address is you know, familiar to us in the last couple of decades, but across the history of American art, it's really unfamiliar. American art has conditioned us to expect even to prefer metaphor because from the 1840s until, you know, pretty darn near now, the form of address American artists most often took was metaphor. And, you know, we take that for granted, but it was once a very contentious way of making art and of addressing the nation Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it was introduced to American art by the Transcendentalists, specifically by Emerson in his 1836 book Nature and in his Harvard Divinity School lecture of 1838. And it was so contentious that when the conservative Harvard theologian Andrews Norton complained about the Transcendentalists and about Emerson, Norton specifically complained about the introduction of metaphor into the American cultural mainstream in a way that Norton seems to have understood it was going to become fundamental, and it did. So it's interesting to me to see that um, the three black artists I named a moment ago um, have all pointedly intentionally made work that has tried to undo or at least update or maybe overthrow a an American philosophical tradition that also embedded whiteness in American culture and intentionally did so. Mm-hmm. The the other thing I, I thought about with the cover, and, I, and I'm cheating a little bit here because this is something I've thought about Cheryl's work before, but for the first 40 years of American art, you know, from from the 1790s into the 1830s, um, the idea of the American state, the idea of the American nation, was carried forth by an individual, by George Washington. That's why you have you know 87,000 Peel and Turnbull and Stewart portraits of Washington floating around, right? <laughs> and then the idea of the American nation was carried forward in American art through through nature and landscape, which remained the dominant mode of address of American painting through World War through and beyond World War One. And, you know, that that, that that question of addressing the idea of the American nation in art has never gone away. It, it certainly went away for white artists starting around World War II. But for the last seven or eight decades, and I think especially for the last 20 years, no group of American artists have more intently explored the idea of the American nation in their work than black artists. Pippin, Douglas, Lawrence, Catlett, uh, Gilliam, uh, David Driscoll, yes. <laughs> uh, Ming Smith, Carrie Mae Weems, um, Deborah Roberts. I could keep going and go going, right? And while I share every concern you raised about representation and the relationship of the representation of Brianna Taylor on the cover of Vanity Fair, I also look at what is still for me a piece of this piece of visual culture and think this is a representation of the American present, uh, of America's racism, you know, that a nation founded in white supremacy hasn't dealt with it and hasn't shown really many signs of dealing with it. And that here's a painting of the consequences of that looking out at us.
1: I'm always very conflicted because it's like, I have these feelings, but I also, I also am studying visual culture and like, I'm going to buy this Vanity Fair magazine, you know, like, because this, I feel like this moment is just really, it's really interesting. And I'm not only going to buy this one, I'm going to buy, you know, um, Jordan Castile's Vogue cover, you know, Kerry James Marshall Vogue cover, you know, I feel like this is just a moment where like Black artists are, I feel like Black artists are kind of g- being given the microphone to kind of put on a platform what they have already been doing, which is exploring, like you said, the American nation and exploring our culture and like unearthing things that we may not even want to face about our culture. And so I do think that as a product of, as a piece of cultural production, it's like, I want the Vanity Fair magazine. Like this cover is significant and it's important. And even as a painting outside of the magazine, it's important. And I feel like perhaps if I would have seen this painting Like, in a museum context, I wouldn't have such, like, loaded opinions on it. I wonder about
0: that, too. I've been wondering about that for two, exactly (laughs) that for two days.
1: The response that I have to this cover is not from the cover alone. It's not from Vanity Fair alone. It's a response to this moment. It's the response to this moment. Yeah, it's a response to this moment of me going on social media and seeing influencers, you know, write captions like, now that my side boob has gotten your attention... Breonna Taylor's murderers still haven't been arrested. You know, that sort of capital that appearing to be an activist has, the sort of knee-jerk reactions institutions that claim that they're for the people and claim that they're inclusive and diverse and at least are working, are striving towards inclusivity and diversity. It's, It's interesting to see how they've reacted and it'll be interesting to see what sorts of exhibitions come out of this, you know. I think that instead of for I think that institutions instead of just looking to respond to this moment with relevancy, they should look they should kind of look to respond to this moment with a mirror.
0: And Zynga Simmons, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford and Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. The center remains closed due to coronavirus, but you can wex from home with exclusive live streams, virtual screenings, curator suggestions, learning resources for parents, and much more. Go to wexarts.org for events, such as conversation with curators Lucy Zimmerman and Jennifer Lang and artist Stanya Khan. You'll also find a video tour of Latoya Ruby Frazier's The Last Cruise with senior curator Michael Goodson and a collection of Modern Art Notes conversations with artists who've shown at the WEX. It's all at wexarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, my March conversation with Beth Turner. Just a reminder, Turner, along with Austin Barron-Bailey, is the co-curator of Jacob Lawrence: The American Struggle. Beth Turner, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Glad to be here.
0: Let's set the stage a bit for our conversation about these paintings. It's the mid-1950s. How old is Lawrence and how many of his 10 narrative series of paintings has he already completed before he begins on this series?
2: Yes, so Lawrence is 37 years old. Just thinking back when he came to fame with the exhibition of the Migration Series at Edith Halpert's gallery, he was only 23 years old. And so moving forward in time, we find him in middle age at 37, and he is at the top of his game. His style has evolved, developed into a, a multi-layered, multivalent kind of application of paint, and his content is equally challenging and developed in terms of a very strong relationship between a word and image with his narrative cycles. This is this will be uh, his seventh out of ten narrative narratives that he'll do in his career. So you can see that it's heavily weighted, this narrative form, very challenging narrative form, comes out early in his career, and then he uses it strategically only at at later intervals. Although I I would add that there is a narrative component to many of his works, but this idea, uh, his invention of the same-sized Masonite panels or hardboard panels gathered together with texts accompanied by text, you know, this is number seven.
0: Five years after finishing the series, Lawrence calls it a turning point in his career. How so?
2: I think he realized that he was operating at that level of control and the idea that he believed, I mean, he honestly believed in the, the power of his narrative invention and for his narrative invention to freight this kind of content about being American and seeing and owning American history, embracing it for what it, what it is, what it was, and to present that understanding to uh, the American public writ- writ large. I think he very much meant it to be a part of the conversation uh, at that moment in 19. uh, Well, it was uh, he started in 1954. He started it exactly the month in May 1954 at exactly the moment of the Brown versus Board of Education decision being uh, handed down. I, I think you can see his research uh, working in concert with that kind of uh, backdrop.
0: Why do you think the subject he chose at that moment was the the history of the nation, which, I mean, it's certainly the biggest subject he could have chosen.
2: <laughs> well, let's think about it in terms of the kinds of conversations that were in the media at the time, this idea of the House Un-American Activities Committee the idea of this litmus test for who is an American and and who is the true American. At the same time, this question and important claim for equality in the desegregation of schools, you know, that I think calls for an identity check. And Lawrence is saying to the to the public writ large, that um, all of American history is African American history; that it that they're inseparable, and that one needs to understand that it that African the African American lens is critical to understanding American history.
0: If I could just provide a moment of historiographical lens for that idea the field of American history in nineteen fifty-six, especially nineteenth century American history, was dominated by Southerners. It's really not until, you know, you kind of get the the Eric Foners and uh, in that generation that the kind of the Southern hold on on the American story is is overturned. Are there any contexts for Lawrence's address of American history and his insistence on putting black Americans at the heart of it? That are that are relevant or informed him anything contemporary or is this entirely a product of his own revisionism?
2: You're right. It's well before Howard Zinn's uh, social history of the 1960s. It's social history, bottom up, if you will, uh, everyday people, ordinary people, decisions made by the people uh, that shape our t- life and times. So he's well ahead of his time in terms of historiography. But in backing up a bit, one must look also to the publication of John Hope Franklin's book, From Slavery to Freedom, being published in the late 40s. And then also think of the work, important work of Herbert Aptheker, in his documentation of bringing forward important documentation of the history of slavery in America and also bringing forward uh, key documents and publishing them. All of that, I think, goes to create this larger awareness on the part of Lawrence. But it is also, I think, his view that history should not be segregated, and that he he of course, as we as we all know, was not a cultural separatist that he he really believed that his claim to those iconic events was a part and parcel of his own citizenship in the United States. So he believed that this this subject should be be a part of something that everyone needed to see, and that from the public writ large, all Americans needed to understand it through the African American lens because it had been totally left out. And so I think it's an eye-opening, eye-popping kind of experience to be able to really deeply look into these paintings and read these Words of individuals from that time frame. I think that's that's just a, a part of just how far he thought this invention could carry the message. It's quite exciting. You know, you were mentioning earlier about uh, Lawrence's moment at you know at the moment uh, where he, where he was in time, how old he was, and and that kind of thing at that point of his career. He was also perhaps the best known African American artist in America or actually internationally. He modern artist. He was included in all of the key surveys of American art. He is representing, you know, his figurative style, if you will, his his way of presenting content was present in all the surveys of American art, American painting. So he was quite prominent.
0: There's one other book I thought of as I walked through the exhibition um, that's in Salem as we're we're recording this. And that is W.E.B. Du Bois' 1935 book, Black Reconstruction in America, the subtitle of which almost perfectly describes Lawrence's project. The subtitle is An Essay Toward a History of the Part Which Black Folk Played, in the attempt to reconstruct democracy in America. Du Bois is framing foregrounds, the role Black Americans played as primary actors within an historical narrative that had not always included them as such. And I suspect
2: Lawrence was well aware of the book. Yes, I, I imagine so. And Du Bois is also, you know, has a, a very large profile in America and in Harlem. I mean, he is very much challenging the United States conventional view of History, even as Lawrence is doing so in in the 1950s, he is a part of teaching history at the Jefferson School, which has a branch in Harlem. There's very much a sense that history needs to be rewritten, expanded, and under understood as a, a larger phenomenon than simply the i iconic events with the single white male hero at the helm.
0: And as we get to talking about individual paintings, individual panels in a moment, we'll, we'll touch on a couple places where Lawrence really emphasizes that. But before we get into the panels, let's quickly set up the series. Uh, Lawrence plans this as a 60-painting series. It ends up being a 30-painting series. 25 of them are um, in the show as we tape this, although who knows, maybe if Another one or two gets found. It will work its way in. This exhibition uh, and, and book are an act of assembly, really. What did you have to do to to get all these pictures in one place at one time again, for the first time since 1957, I think?
2: Well, I think we um, had a what shall we say, a leg up as our ally, a, a very passionate collector by the name of Harvey Ross, who at the time of the reunion of the Migration Series in New York in 1995, which was a reunion that I had had curated and MoMA and the Phillips had collaborated on, there was an exhibit of the uh, Struggle Series or some panels from the Struggle Series, an exhibit of Jacob Lawrence's work with the 17 panels of the Struggle series at the um, Midtown Payson Gallery. And he began looking at these works and wondering why these were uh, scattered. They were in the hands of many different collectors, private collectors. And this was the only series that was not held by an institution, or at least a group of them weren't. So he And his wife, Harvey Ann, began to collect them. I came to know him. We stayed in touch. And so I would say, how did we get these uh, works together? We had a leg up in that Harvey and his wife, Harvey Ann, had gathered together uh, 12 of them. That pushed us to begin, uh, through the Catalog Raisonne, to contact other owners and would-be lenders And it's so interesting, Tyler, these panels had been located, but then it had been practically 20 years since their location had been identified. And in some cases, they had been sold, they had been dispersed. I mean, memory is a very short term thing when it comes to the art market and tracing provenance. And so uh, it became a real detective game, finding people that or finding the new owners of certain pieces and being able to tell them about our project, this idea that we wanted not only to reunite the physical paintings, but also to reunite them. And this is where it really becomes the first time in 60 years, reunite them with with the words that were meant to accompany them. And it's amazing how quickly Those, the words of the captions, the painting captions, were peeled away from these objects. Uh, They did not accompany them through time. And so in reuniting these pictures, pulling them together one by one, it was also reuniting them with the words. Because Lawrence's invention really comes, narrative invention really comes when you start to decipher uh, these color Patterns and forms and uh, bringing them together with the words. His method is to read the full text of, let's say, a quotation that he's excerpted. So his manner of visualization comes from reading and it's always been a, an interesting phenomenon that Lawrence is a modern artist who spends a great deal of time in the library. And he had a tremendous capacity for synthesis and to really understand the flow and also to, to get to the heart of a particular passage or moment. That was also one of the great discoveries in bringing this together. Lawrence originally plans, you know, he has, has various ideas for this uh, historical narrative And he starts researching it in 1949. So it's five years of research uh, before he ever begins to paint. And so he, in one of his funding applications, he explains that he has assembled a clipping file of 300 items. One can think about this kind of research. And we, we went to all the various archives for Jacob Lawrence searching, in vain for these clippings. Uh, what we found instead is, of course, the clipping files at the Schomburg Library. And I don't know whether you remember the famous uh, Harmon Foundation photograph of the reading room of the Schomburg where people are diligently working at tables. What you see are people, not not people reading books necessarily, you have people making up these clipping scrapbooks. In the trash can beside the tables, you see the leavings of whatever they've cut out, of newspaper articles that are related to African-American culture and history, various articles from magazines, just very interesting kinds of contemporary uh, looks at history and commentary and book reviews, and all manner of things come up in these clipping files. And they the Schomburg Library actually stopped doing that kind of work in 1972, and the clipping files last only live in microfiche, but they're there. And what they do is they give you an idea of Lawrence's research process, the idea of extrapolating or... Paying clear attention to what is going on in the news, in the in the various um, publications at the time that he is working, but also knowing that Lawrence can rely on these various uh, thematic files organized thematically um, at the Schomburg. So, I think that's that's an interesting aspect that we discovered, but Lawrence does start off, you know working these 5 years and he thinks at first it's going to be a, an African American history of that covers the entire time of time frame of US history from its founding but then Lawrence shifts and it is in this period of 1954 that he decides no I'm going to take iconic events from American history and and look at them through the African-American lens. And yes, very much uh, in keeping with W.B. Du Bois' notion that America, all of America, needs to see and understand this through this lens.
0: So turning to the panels themselves, what are the themes or subjects that maybe aren't in every panel but that remain present and foregrounded across the series?
2: I think foregrounded in this series is the notion of the people, the idea that you see groups of people in the midst of deciding or fighting or pursuing, moving toward a goal. But they are in, in groups and they're ordinary people. They're women. They're men, they're all colors, races. You don't get a sense of overtly uh, racial identification, but you do have a sense that there's all kinds of people. I guess the word all is the best way of putting it, that Lawrence has a way of bringing people together and having it understood what is what kind of spirit is galvanizing their movement and what is creating these these clashes so for example i'm thinking of his painting called the massacre in at boston and this is of course the the iconic moment where the colonists were held captive in a a kind of occupied city, a city occupied by British troops are fighting against this force. They don't, they see it as oppression. So we have the the colonists throwing rocks and the the moment where the British soldiers fire. And uh, what Lawrence chooses to bring out of that iconic moment, again, a very strongly remembered moment not the british soldiers not the guns but the colonists united throwing the rocks centered in the midst of that group is crispus attucks who has fallen and is bleeding and is the first martyr of of or considered to be the first martyr of the revolution and so you've got that kind of triangular kind of composition that is filled with this fury of the colonists. It's, it's about what is galvanizing that group and how it is that, and their bodies almost in frame um, the fallen Crispus Attucks.
0: You mentioned that the panels really focus on groups of people. There are only two panels in the entire series that feature individuals, single single individuals. You also mentioned the muscular compositions. I'm sure that's going to come up again and again as we talk. Massacre in Boston is just dominated by this impossibly beefy triangle um, at the the right-hand side of the panel. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Another painterly element that, that recurs across panel after panel after panel is the way Lawrence uses the color red. How does red and and really small but very loud passages of red recur over and over again?
2: Well, starting with the very first panel that's in the sequence there in the exhibition, which you begin with a quotation from Patrick Henry's speech to the Virginia Convention, asking, are we willing to bear the chains of slavery is his question, And of course, that's not the famous quotation of give me liberty or give me death. But Henry's speech is more like a petition of an enslaved people. So he invokes slavery on behalf of the cause of the colonists' quest for freedom. And what Lawrence shows you are people listening to these words, hearing these words. And there is a curtain that covers part of the scene And dripping from that curtain are large strokes of of red. And it's the symbolism of that red and the red for the blood of sacrifice that what is it going to cost to gain this freedom and who will sacrifice? And, of course, all are meant to sacrifice. Everyone listening to those words knows that what will come is that kind of bloody sacrifice in in the fight. And of course, uh, Henry's words were meant to raise money for or, or to send the Virginia to bring together the Virginia militia. So interestingly enough, there is a figure standing tall above them, pointing behind that curtain. You can't see what's behind the curtain. The curtain's dripping with blood, but is pointing ahead. The people in Below him are clustered in, in groups, there are mothers with children, there are men and, and women of all persuasions and looking and thinking about these quickening, I guess, into these small groups, uh, listening to these words. So he puts the words and he makes a painting about what is it like to hear those words. And one imagines that that man standing with the musket pointing is Henry. But uh, we've all had debates in our group of curators uh, trying to figure this out. Everybody has their own theory. But I think that goes to the point. It's the group. It's how Americans are, this diverse and clustered people.
0: Speaking of the group, uh, the 10th panel, which features the quotation, We crossed the river at McConkie's Ferry, nine miles above Trenton. The night was excessively severe, which the men bore without the least murmur. Tench Tillman, 27th of December, 1776. The 10th panel, uh, which is at the Met, is a riff on another painting at the Met by Emanuel Lutze from 1851. What is that 1851 painting, and how does Lawrence change the narrative to focus on the group?
2: Can you imagine any greater contrast than the Emanuel Leutze painting with Lawrence's painting. This Emanuel Leutze painting, of course, history painting in the 19th century was the the highest form um, and the most important type of painting. And so it is given the largest amount of square footage, and I do mean square footage, It is the size of a large wall. Its frame is equally imposing. And what, of course, you have is a a life size, uh, practically George Washington with his men crossing the river on Christmas Eve in order to surprise the Hessian soldiers that are fighting for the British. This is a particularly important moment in history because, of course, Washington's army had suffered any number of defeats. And so his ability to rally this army, even under the most adverse conditions to cross, is the main story here. And Loitze wants you to know who's in charge, and the hero there is Washington and the men in the boats with him and behind him, pushing away the ice and and crossing. It was a night crossing, so of course this iconic image doesn't uh, really give you that sense at all. So it is definitely a construction to feature Washington in a way that is not really related to the facts. The facts are that the men crossed, in huddled in these small boats, these very flimsy boats, and that it was a rough, cold night in choppy water. And so what Lawrence chooses to favor is this firsthand count of Washington's secretary, a letter sent to Washington about how the men were fared during this crossing. And so you've got three boats in this blue sea of choppy water. you don't see either shore. What you are focused on is that they are in the midst of trying to get across that river and not drown. And uh, they are huddled down the swathes of cloth over these hunched bodies, various sort of hats distinguishing the individuals that are in the boat. but they're mostly muffled and huddled. And then the blood, the red of the sa- red blood of sacrifice, is dripping over the sides of the boat, various accents, just to remind you of exactly what, how harsh uh, the conditions were. But what I, I love about that is that you are in the midst the way in which Lawrence wants you to wants to portray this. You don't know that this is going to be successful. You don't know that how it's going to be. It's the matter of submitting and undergoing and doing the willingness, finding the strength to actually pursue this, even when, you know, they had suffered already so many defeats, but they rallied and they got in the boat and went across the river. So it, it uh, I think that's what he wants people to see. He, he doesn't want you to forget that it it really called upon everyone
0: another constant across nearly all of the pictures in the series is the palette lawrence uses you know there are some some browns and some blacks of course but but the palette is overwhelmingly oriented around the three primary colors red yellow and blue and and lawrence often uses uh, a pale green as well green into the 18th century was was considered to be a primary color until it was supplanted by Leblanc for example. So in a painting like panel 18 in all your intercourse with the natives treat them in the most friendly and conciliatory manner which their own conduct will admit from a letter Jefferson wrote to Lewis and Clark in 1803 Lawrence is absolutely clearly building the panel around not just the groups of figures that we've we've discussed but around the, the primary colors. Is there a metaphor? Did he intend there to be a metaphor between his use of primary colors and um, the American Democratic Project or the centrality of democracy to the American Project?
2: Well, certainly, though, you, you make a good point about the repetition of that palette throughout the entire series. And of course, it is the unifying device. And I do think that the strength of that construction, and he is literally constructing with those primary colors, uh, really does have to do with seeing a unifying thread uh, going through the uh, whole series. I've often wondered about that. I've often wondered, Mm -hmm. because we often, with the migration series, talk about the migration colors, but in terms of orange and green and black, and thinking about how those work together, and then thinking about the struggle with i would say the white and the the blue and the golden brown and then these flashes of red the, those seem to be his colors of of choice and in talking about the panel that you just referred to about with the quotation from the letter jefferson's instructions to Lewis and Clark on the treatment of Native peoples that they certainly, most certainly will encounter and most certainly need the help of in order to traverse this territory at all. You see that panel being the one that employs, I would say, the greatest range of colors and the greatest display of colors. I almost see this as a kind of a a very human love note in the middle of what obviously is a very tense and frenzied kind of, there are many tense and frenzied moments, but here we have a moment in in a vertical panel that's almost divided in half. And of course, that's a very daredevil move for an artist to, create that kind of deliberate kind of symmetry because it could very well fall apart, fall flat. But in Lawrence's hands, these colors, uh, the, the red and the blue meeting there at the center, the two columnar figures, then the stacking, the meeting of two parties. There's the voyage of the explorers from the voyage of discovery, led at this moment by Sacagawea, meeting up with the chief come Kuwait. And they are, um, it, it is a really signal, signal moment in this journey. And a- almost every journal, anyone that kept a journal on that voyage of discovery recorded this event. It, it was so momentous. And mm-hmm. what Lawrence does is tell it in the most dramatic fashion possible. He picks this moment where Sacagawea is talking to Chief Kung Kuwait and she recognizes that the person she is talking to is her brother. And she has not seen him for 15 years. And she had been captured in a tribal dispute, in a war, and enslaved. And then she had eventually been sold to her French uh, fur trapper husband, Charbonneau, who was hired as a guide for Lewis and Clark with his wife. And so you, you have this incredible reunion and this wonderful warmth, and these two figures come up together, and they almost form a shape of a heart. They want to, though the The movement of their shoulders bending inward almost makes you feel that sort of shape, heart shape in the center. And it's the moment just before they burst into great joy and happiness and dancing. They all all the journals from this moment tell us that there was great joy and dancing, this reunion of this family. And I think, Lawrence wants you to understand beyond the political implications of conquest or ownership or territory, that there is this bond, this sense of humanity and this love. And like I said, I, I think that this is a love note in the middle of this very troubled story of American history. But you find this and it is a real achievement for Lawrence to portray this visually with these various planar forms and these very bright colors
0: speaking of colors panel 4 is one of the most interesting in the series for me it the, the quotation that goes with it is i alarmed almost every house till i got to lexington paul revere the the panel presents uh, revere's horse as as being black and has Revere wearing a black coat and a black hat, which we of course read is the famous tricornered hat of the time. I'm not a Revere expert, of course, but I don't know of anything that meaningfully or truthfully suggests that Revere rode a black horse and wore a black cloak. But certainly, much of um, but certainly the ride was at night, and he was unseen and unknown about by the British. And certainly, one reading is that Lawrence is using black for the horse and Revere's garments as a way of referencing how he was cloaked from their sight. But another possible reference came to mind, and I wonder if you think Lawrence could have been using it. This is a painting made in, in 1954, just a year or two after Ralph Allison's Invisible Man was published. Do you think Lawrence is compressing and layering histories here? Could he be referring to Allison?
2: I must say that I hadn't thought about it that way but now that you mention it I can understand uh, the connection that uh, certainly Lawrence was uh, aware of Ellison and there are other ways in which he indicates this in other series so I'm thinking that what is so unique about Lawrence's rendering of Paul Revere as the night rider as the writer who comes in to alarm the sons of of liberty, he's one step ahead of the British. He's cloaked in darkness, and he's not calling a huge amount of attention to himself, as he explains in this text, which was, you know, a recollection and written many years later. But he was talking about just this idea that he was being pursued, and that he needed to get this information to this group of people who cluster around him. It's very hard to even distinguish the individual figures that are around this horse and rider. This is not your traditional uh, scene that Grant Wood, for example, the Paul Revere of the, of the American scene painters. This is someone who is meant to blend, meld, kind of be instrumental but then move on.
0: The last panel I want to specifically raise is uh, number 19. It shows an imagined passage from the war of 1812 when the British impressed American soldiers. And in Lawrence's representation, three soldiers are bound, poked with swords, prompted to bleed. And of course, this is um, one of the series of such events that, that leads to the war of 1812. So speaking of the elision of history, again, it, it it's a, picture that very much recalls slavery in the middle passage and 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 the impressment of africans who were then transported to the americas and the caribbean do you think lawrence is referencing many histories at once here or or am i am i overreaching
2: <laughs> you know i start to think about many things when i think of that panel of the the prisoners being marched before the commandant of the, or the captain of the ship who postures over them. And uh, they're being goaded and pushed along. And then you can see the blood coming from, you know, where they've been pierced and poked. And I've sort of connected that with certainly the stacking and and the, the terrible dehumanized aspect of this, you know, the the prisoners have their heads hunched, they have their backs towards you, they're, they're lozen shaped they're stacked kind of vertically as they're walking onto the deck in chains. I, I don't think there's any question that the analogy with enslavement, impressment and enslavement, was certainly used by people at the time, and then thinking the way in which... That memory of slavery and the presence of the unresolved, I think this is the, you you know, we're talking about historical elysian and how uh, the past and present work together in these paintings. It's unresolved history. It's history waiting for an acknowledgement. It's history waiting for a kind of recognition of what it took to be American, to defend America, to fight for America, to gain equality and justice in America, all of that is an unresolved history. And I think Lawrence is giving you kind of an ambiguity with he has this wonderful way in the struggle series. Abstraction really is an Important component of that historical elision that's going on in these compositions where, you know, these vertically stacked forms uh, really allow for you to begin to imagine how that kind of analogy was absolutely clear. But there are other compositions where you've got amazing abstraction that allows for you to understand and empathize. I think that's the other aspect of this series. We've talked about sacrifice. We've talked about this kind of frenzy and conflict and these overlapping and clashing, very sharp forms coming together. But abstraction also creates passages that aren't necessarily describing any one thing, but allows for you to see many things. So if you let me just go back in the series and point to the the farmer with the load of hay that is he's hauling. He's almost he's so encumbered by this gigantic load of hay that is this profusion of this golden these golden shapes and and he's weighed down, he's hunched over, he's pulling this cart and it has to do with the weight of the obligation of our democracy, that we mutually pledge to one another in our democracy. And we are we're encumbered by this weight, this pledge. And so Lawrence visualizes it in that way. And I, I can't get over you know just the number of abstract passages that allow for you to begin to understand and feel so many things.
0: That's panel six. It recalls Millet, and it absolutely does not recall Millet.
2: (laughs) Let's close by
0: talking a little bit about how Lawrence painted these panels. Each is 12 by 16 or 16 inches by 12, depending on orientation. Each is egg tempera on, on, on board. To me, each of them, I mean, almost all of them, recalls or looks a lot like fresco painting, albeit with, of course, all kinds of modernist twists and such. But the way Lawrence lays on his paint and layers it even looks like uh, fresco painting into wet plaster. Was Lawrence interested in fresco painting?
2: He spoke about fresco painting. He talked about the paintings of the early Renaissance and being very influenced by the way in which tempera paint was applied in making these very small panels, a devotional panels in, in tempera, and the brightness of the colors and the way in which they could be applied in these layers. You know, you see many similarities across his series with the idea that, you know, the panels are prepared, they have the gesso, and then he draws on them. You can see the pencil drawing. It shows through. And then the way in which he then makes these amazing shapes in applying these colors. It's not two or three shapes, as one might find in the migration series. It's it's just these amazing kind of fractured, kaleidoscopic shapes that that start to mesh and overlay. And then each color area starts to have there might be a darker blue and then a lighter blue, but you get a kind of sense of flashing light and there's a amazing kind of chromatic brilliance he's able to get by allowing the colors that he's using to have these different kinds of shaded areas. But it's not traditional modeling in any, any stretch of the imagination. It's much more about allowing this color to begin to operate in the space of this construction of what he called composition. And this armature of the line and then these, these amazing colors that come to these very, very sharp points are, are just uh, remarkable.
0: I found myself walking through the show thinking of, thinking very much of fresco painting and the relation of fresco painting to endurance, to how frescoes are fundamental to or part of the architecture once they're completed. And thinking of that as maybe Lawrence's metaphor for how art. And indeed, his own interpretation is fundamental to the history of the nation.
2: I do think the idea of the permanence of tempera and the the strength, the permanence and the strength of tempera paint and the architecture of his composition that is organized by his dividing the space with these lines. There's very much an analogy there, Uh, Tyler. I think you've set up a, a beautiful analogy.
0: Elizabeth Hutton-Turner, thanks so much.
2: Oh, thank you. It's been my great pleasure.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.